Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. Another week is upon us, and I'm super excited about this one. I'm also super excited about this animal-based gathering that we are hosting in Santa Teresa, Costa Rica, July 23rd to 26th, 2021, in year AD. If you guys saw my controversial thoughts video last week, you know that I'm living in Costa Rica because this place is really an amazing spot to be a part of something bigger, to be a part of what I would call the remembering, which is remembering where we have come from as humans being in the sun, being in nature, grounding, uh, lower levels of EMFs, lower levels of social media, and higher levels of community sun exposure and amazing meat and organs. And so if you are interested in this, you can email us radicalhealth@heartandsoil.co. We're going to get people here. It's going to be amazing. There will be other details forthcoming, but um, the remembering, I believe, is just my way of helping us recall where we've come from as humans. And it's eating an animal-based diet with meat and organs, either fresh or desiccated, like we make it hard in soil and the least toxic plant foods. So if you need more organs in your diet and if you're not getting organs in your diet, I really believe you will benefit from this. Check us out at heartandsoil.co. Our mission is to help you reclaim your birthright to radical health. I believe that all of us have a birthright to very radical health, profound health that we should not accept the norm, that we should not accept disease, chronic illness, autoimmunity, inflammation, basically decrepitude as normal, that we are meant to be radically healthy humans. And that is your birthright. And our mission at Heart and Soil is to help you reclaim that with organs, with organs in desiccated capsules. Now, these are not any organs. These are grass-fed, grass-finished organs from New Zealand. We're working on developing a US-based supply chain. So check us out, heartandsoil.co. We've got a new website and you can now get free shipping on orders over 120 bucks and Canada shipping is available. This week, I want to highlight our skin, hair and nails product. It's one of my favorite products that we make. It has liver and bone marrow and scapula and trachea cartilage, which are unique sources of collagen, so much more high quality than hot hoof and high cartilage, which is in what's in most hydrolyzed collagen supplements. This is a review from Adriana. She says, my skin has never looked healthier. My nails no longer chip and break. Also happy with your organ pills that I gave my husband and son who noticed a difference in my son's mood and consistent energy. Thank you so much for your hard work, Dr. Saladino. So check out hair, skin, and nails and all of our other products at the new <clears throat> Heart and Soil website, heartandsoil.co. My guest on this week's podcast is Herman Ponser. He is a PhD researcher at Duke University and is very interested in specifically a constrained model of energy expenditure, which we talk about in great detail in this podcast. Herman is a really nice guy. His book, Burn, is very well written. It's very uh, entertaining and he's a great writer. And he spent a lot of time with the Hadza. So it was really fun with him to have conversation about his experiences with the Hadza. We talked a little about fiber. We talked about the constrained energy model. And we talked about why you don't want to be like the people on The Biggest Loser and try and exercise your way to losing weight. It doesn't work. What is the takeaway from this podcast? 
listen to the whole thing to really get this driven home, this point driven home. But my take is diet, diet, diet is the biggest lever. The quality of your diet is the biggest lever when it comes to your metabolic health and your weight loss. And that's huge because I think we are constantly told eat less, move more, and that doesn't do anything to change your dietary quality. I think it's all wrong. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review wherever you listen, especially Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach more people. That helps us reach more people with the remembering. As a thank you to you guys, I give away a signed copy of my book every month to somebody who leaves me a review at Apple Podcasts. So thank you in advance for helping us move this message forward, for helping us share this ancestral, this evolutionary message of animal-based diets, the remembering, sunlight, play with as many people as possible because life is amazing and it's meaningful to be able to share these ideas with you guys so that more and more people can enjoy their lives. That's why we do what we do. At Heart and Soil, that's why I do what I do in my medical practice. That's why I wrote the book. Anyway, that's why the podcast exists, you guys. Thanks for reviewing it. Thank you also to my sponsors. I want to give a shout out to Eight Sleep. This is a pretty cool company that makes a mattress that actually changes temperature throughout the night. So we've all heard, oh, you need to be sleeping at 68 degrees. It's ideal. It's just a myth. There's no one universal sleep temperature that gives you deep and high quality sleep, but changing the sleep temperature throughout the night is very effective in helping us get good quality sleep. And body temperature affects both your circadian rhythm and sleep quality, but the average mattress is gonna absorb body heat, giving you night sweats and causing restlessness. That's gonna interrupt your circadian rhythm. So Eight Sleep came up with this thing called the Pod Pro, and it is a thermoregulating mattress. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. It's also like an aura ring built into your mattress. That's HRV. You can start sleeping as cool as 55 or as hot as 110 degrees. And the temperature of the Pod Pro will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, the bedroom temperature. It's like AI for your bed. It's amazing. And the results are impressive. Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster. They reduce sleep interruptions by 40%. And they, overall, they get more restful sleep. It's so popular. It's like loved by CEOs, pro athletes, overall high performers who want to get sleep fit. And I think it's really going to benefit you. So check it out. It'll totally adjust the temperature of the mattress throughout the night, cooling at night as you go to sleep, warming up in the morning as you're starting to wake up. There's even a little vibrating alarm where the, the mattress will vibrate to wake you up. It's really cool. Go to eightsleep.com front slash carnivoremd. Check out the Pod Pro. Save 150 bucks at checkout using the promo code carnivoremd. That is eightsleep.com. E-I-G-H-T. S-L-E-E-P.com, crunch slash carnivoremd. Use the code carnivoremd, save $150 at checkout. Also want to tell you guys about my buddy Monsel's hunting company. It's called Sacred Hunting. You've heard me talk about them before. Uh, sacredhunting.com, crunch slash Paul will get you where you need to go. But I find being in nature to be one of the fundamental things that makes me a human and feel alive. And hunting your food is something that it's also fundamentally human. This is a great way for men to do their first hunt or to learn the basics of how to track, stalk, kill, and field dress wild game animals while Monsol, my buddy, adds a ritual Native American component, making it a true rite of passage for men. I went on a hunt with Monsol in January 2020. I was able to kill a deer respectfully, gratefully with my bow, and it was amazing to to, to field dress that animal with other men on this hunt with me. 
and then to share it around the fire, it's an experience I'll never forget. So fundamental health listeners will save $250 off their trip by mentioning my name, Paul's name. There's five spots on each hunt. So visit sacredhunting.com from slash Paul, fill out the two minute application, set up an exploratory call with my buddy Monsa, sacredhunting.com from slash Paul. I want to also give a shout out to my friends at White Oak Pastures, the sixth generation family, regenerative farm in Bluffton, Georgia, really fighting the good fight. If you heard the podcast with Robbie Sanson, you know that regenerative agriculture recreates ecosystems. It supports ecosystems. Monocrop farming of plants is destroying ecosystems. It's a very horrible thing. It also sequesters carbon into the soil, which improves mycorrhizal fungal networks. This is the future for how we should be raising cattle. You cannot abstain from voting with your dollars. You can abstain from voting in an election if you don't like who's running for office. Like maybe you didn't like who was running for office in the last election, either of them. Who knows? Maybe you did, respectfully, either way. But you can't abstain from voting with your dollars. You're either voting for Nestle, Unilever, Monsanto, and other huge conglomerates like Cargill, which we probably don't want to support with our dollars, or you're voting for small family farms that are regeneratively raising animals and recreating ecosystems and making much higher quality meat for you and your family and organs. So check these folks out, whiteoakpastures.com. Carnivore MD will get you 10% off at White Oak Pastures. I also want to give a shout out to my friends at belcampo.com. And these folks are also doing regeneratively raised grass-fed, grass-finished meat in Northern California. And I really trust and believe in the quality of their meat. They also have amazing meat from Uruguay. It's fantastic. Unfortunately, there was an incident that happened recently with Belcampo where at their Santa Monica store, there were some bad decisions made about replacing meat that went out of stock with stuff that wasn't regeneratively farmed. And that's a bummer. And I think they're taking responsibility for that. It's not supply chain wide. The overall, their meat supply is fantastic and really good. And if anything, I want to congratulate them for being willing to say, hey, we messed up. This was a management issue. It was a bad choice. We apologize. We want to make it right. Bell Campo believes in regenerative agriculture. They believe in grass feeding, grass finishing of animals, and they believe in recreating ecosystems. And I think this is going to be a good thing for them long term in terms of how it helps them understand where things go wrong. We all make mistakes, but they have assured me, and I trust them deeply, that overall their supply chain is regenerative. And this was an isolated incident. So check out belcampo.com. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 20% off your order. And I appreciate what they're doing as well, because they are fighting the good fight. So thanks for listening to this podcast, you guys. Check us out at hardensoil.co. Thank you to my other sponsors. And stay radical, as always. Love you all. Herman, thanks for coming on the podcast. Good to have you here, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's going to be a fun one. There's a lot of, I think, uh, similarities in, in our interests. And you've had some really interesting experiences with the Hadza. Mm-hmm. Um, from your perspective as an anthropologist, you, you know, made some interesting conclusions about them that I think the audience will be really interested to hear about today. So it's, it's going to be interesting. Um, you wrote a book called Burn, which I recommend everybody check out because... Man, you're a good writer. It's a very okay. fun book to read. You put a lot of interesting stories in there. It Thank was, you. I it mean, was very it's entertaining. So fun to do the work, so it's really fun to, to hear you say that. I appreciate it. Thank you. I think that my favorite anecdote from the book was you on your hands and knees vomiting after too many nights of partying in in a, in a region. What was the Dimnasi? Yeah, Dimnasi. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The old grad school days, you know, and kind of, um, 
the stupidity of youth or something like that. I don't know what you call it, but yeah, it was, uh, we would, I don't know what got into us, what gets into every sort of 20 year old or whatever, but um, yeah, man, Could, couldn't just enjoy being there. Had, <laughs> had to go too far and woke up paying the consequences too many times. And you, you sort of framed the story with a conversation that you'd had with one of your professors walking across Harvard Yard or something. And, and you, maybe you can tell the story. You know, you asked him, what, what do I need to go on this expedition? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was wonderful. So it was, uh, it's Overbar Yosef, who's, who passed away maybe last year, maybe two years ago now. The, the pandemic has completely messed up my, my sort of timeline. But um, wonderful man uh, and a huge, I mean, eminent scholar in, uh, in Paleolithic archaeology. Did a lot of Neanderthal um, excavation work and was, was working in, in the Republic of Georgia, which is where Demonisi is, uh, as well as other sites too. But um, I, it was my first graduate school year and I knew I was at Harvard and, and I was talking to the faculty there and I said, I want to do some field work in the summer. And I said, well, if you want to do archaeology, then you know the person to talk to is Ofer Bar-Yosef. So I, I went and I tracked him down and, um, and he was like always frenetic, always walking around, always moving. And uh, I come to his office. I just happen to catch him. I'm like, Dr. Yosef, you know, can we go? Uh, Dr. Yosef, can we go down? Yeah, can, I, can we talk? And he goes, yes, but I'm going to give up. I'm picking up pictures. So you come with me. We'll walk. We'll talk. We won't waste any time, you know? And so um, he was always moving. And so I walked with him while he went to get, to get film that he was picking up, you know, old, old developed film back in the day. And, uh, and he's like, you can go to Demonisi. It's great. But, you know, the food's OK. But you can go to France. The food is much better. What would you like? You know, what would you like? Uh, and so I went to Demonisi instead. I picked Demonisi because they had such amazing stuff coming out. And I was like, what else do I need besides, you know, the usual kit? And he goes, maybe an extra liver. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, he, it's, he knew the score, man. It was not a, I was not alone in, uh, in, in over, overindulging there at, at Demonisi back in the day. And what did you guys find at Demonisi? There were these interesting stories in the book about these skulls that you guys unearthed. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing stuff. It's, you know, the, uh, so it's a homo erectus site for those in the, who, who are keeping track. It's a 1.8 million years old. And so that makes it the oldest site where we find human hominin fossils. So hominins are human ancestors. Um, the, the earliest site for hominin fossils outside of Africa. And what's really exciting about that is that that means that you've got a species that is ecologically flexible enough, right, to make it kind of anywhere, not just on, you know, the sort of forests and maybe some open savannas in, in East Africa, but, um, but everywhere on the globe. And, you know, and the key insight there, it, the key thing that, that made it possible was that they're hunting and gathering, right? Um, that's, that hunting and gathering comes along with uh, earliest homo, um, starts around the same time, two, two and a half million years ago. And, you know, it's just sort of the, the skeleton key that opens up the planet for you because now you've got this really flexible lifestyle that you can kind of find food anywhere. And uh, I remember in the book you were mentioning this, this interesting concept that 1.8 million years outside of Africa means that hominids left Africa much more uh, distantly and much further into the past than Homo sapiens did. Homo sapiens oh, apparently left Africa 70 to 80,000 years ago, but to have you know, Homo habilis or Homo erectus fossils, 1.8 million years means that there were all of these predecessor species leaving Africa millions of years before Homo sapiens did. Yeah, that's right. We're just the latest sort of pulse of humanity out of Africa. And, and, and it's interesting to consider why Africa has been this kind of sort of, um, this kind of, you know, boiling pot 
of humanity that these species kind of bubble out at different times. Homo erectus is the first species to kind of bubble out and, and kind of get all over the Eurasia. Um, we come along, you know, Neanderthals at some point get out, uh, Heidelbergensis maybe does two Denisovans. So, I mean, you know, it's like a lot actually. Um, and we're just one of, you know, we, we think that we're like very special now. And I guess we are special in our own way. But, you know, we were one of many of these uh, Pleistocene hominin species. That one, yeah. And people may or may not know that Neanderthals, uh, of course, left Africa. And then there were other species yeah. that became the Denisovans in, in Asia and other other parts of the Eurasian continent. So it's quite an interesting history that we have had as hominids. Now, you spent a lot of time with the Hadza, which is fascinating to me. I got to spend uh, a little bit of time with them. I want to go back. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your experiences with the Hadza. And then from your time with the Hadza, you did these experiments with doubly labeled water, looking at their energy expenditure, which is the main focus of the book Burn. And probably, uh, it seems like one of the main foci of your work in general. You sort of sit at this intersection of anthropology and, and human metabolism. I, I think that's a, I hope that's a fair characterization. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And so, so you, did you spend two summers with the Hadza? How long were you with them? Oh, I've been there several times now uh, for different projects. The main, the first big project that we did with the Deadly Doubled Water work was back in 2009 and in 10. And that was, you know, two months or so in Hadza camps for that particular measurement. But we've gone back since and, um, People I work with, like Brian Wood, are there. You know, Brian Wood has probably spent more time in a Hadza camp than he has in his own bed. Uh, you know, over the past two decades, um, I go have been going back. Yeah, every not quite every summer, but a lot of summers since then. So, um, so yeah, I, I've I've earned my time, I guess, in Hadza camps. Have you have you been able to shoot a bow and kill an animal with it yet? Have you made I mean, I, so I've shot bows with them before, which is fun. Their bows are really, really strong, hard. I mean, you know, yes. it's like a 70 pound. We, we did a study on this, actually. Every time a Hadza man pulls a bow, it's about a, it's like doing a one arm pull up because they're not they're a small stature folks. So, you know, they weigh like 120 pounds and there are guys who have 120 pound draw weights in their bows. Um, most of them are around sort of 70 or 80 pounds, which is still quite strong. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've shot Hadza bows before, but not as well as they as they do. Um, we have done like, you know, shooting competitions and stuff like that. That's really fun. I grew up in a kind of hunting and, uh, you know, <laughs> hunting rural culture in Western Pennsylvania. So I used to shoot bow every now and then growing up. So it was fun to kind of transfer those skills over. But in terms of, of hunting with them, um, that's really tricky because if you've ever been out, I don't know if you went on a hunt while you were there, Multiple, but it's yeah. tons of walking. And then if you, if you do encounter an animal, then it's, you know, you're sort of sneaking up, stalking them the last maybe hundred feet, maybe more. Um, and you know, it's not a game for them in, in those, in the bush camps, they know that's, that's dinner. So you don't want to mess it up for them. So I haven't, no, I haven't hunted out there. When I was, uh, when I was with them, we hunted, uh, baboon and then Dick Dick and a couple of other things, Janet cat. I always wanted to hunt an eland and maybe I'll go back at some point and I'll be able to hunt an eland with them. I would love to see them take down and consume a big yeah. animal. Did you, were you with them when they got any of the big game? Yeah, um, I've been in camps where they've shot giraffe before and uh, and kudu, yeah, kudu and zebra. So yeah, absolutely. And then what is it like when that happens? Because I only saw the small game. I would imagine they quarter it, they bring it back to camp and they eat it for days and days and days. And there's a big, there's a big celebration. That was kind of what they talked about that when they got the big game, everybody yeah. would sing and dance. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I'm, 
the singing and dancing doesn't happen necessarily. Um, they were excited to have it, you know. And so it's, it's, I think the biggest thing in terms of just weight that I've ever seen them bring back to camp is a is a full grown zebra, which are those things are huge. Um, and so yeah, there was like meat hanging from trees for days after that. So they don't have they don't smoke it. They cut it into strips. They eat the organ meat right away. Uh, that goes pretty quickly. And then the meat um, they 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 cut up into strips and they hang from the trees around their homes. Uh, their houses and, and that that dries that out because it's a very dry hot climate there um, and then they just sort of throw a chunk on the fire and eat it uh, for, you know but I will say that there's still you know the women still go out gathering um, guys will still go out and and even you know even though that they just got the zebra they'll still hunt the next day and they kind of things don't change in terms of their forging efforts very much I haven't noticed we actually have an analysis kind of working on that but um, in, in process right now it doesn't look like they change very much um, but they definitely do enjoy having the meat, the meat in the trees for a few days. And when I was with them, they ate the organs first as well. We were lucky enough, and I felt very privileged to be able to share a little bit of baboon kidney and heart and liver, and then the next day some baboon brain with them. Mm -hmm. um, and so you mentioned the apim meats in your book, and, and that was something that we observed there as well. I did not know that testicles were apim as, as, as well, but certainly the organs appear to be apim meats or like super special meats that are really reserved for elder elder senior men in the tribe right yeah that's right that's right it's um yeah apeme meats is uh, uh, how they pronounce it usually but the um but there are foods that parts of the animal and it has to be but you know not all animals have apeme meats so like you know if you shot a squirrel i don't think there's a apeme meat on a squirrel it has to be like a certain kind of certain size of animal base basically uh, and that's right, men get sort of first dibs on some of the special meat and women aren't supposed to eat them. And there's a whole cultural thing about why that is true. And, you know, it's a lot like our own stories, especially like, you know, traditionally, like, you know, you can't eat, you, I grew up in a Catholic household, you couldn't eat meat on Friday. Why is that? Well, I mean, there's a whole history and religion, you know, there's a whole uh, doc, doc, doctrine to that. Um, and so it's kind of the same thing, you know, culturally, that's how it goes down. Now, maybe I know that you were there for a, a long amount of time, but I'm just curious, you know, what kind of other things did you observe them eating? And, and let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's hunting and gathering, right? So the men are out hunting most days. Um, and when they are, we'll talk about the men first. Men go out and hunt big game or any game really. And when uh, they kind of get tired of it or decide they'd have better luck doing other things. Uh, sometimes they'll climb trees and get honey. They'll, so they, have, they always carry an axe with them, a small sort of hatchet. Uh, we, they call them axes, but they're kind of hatchet sized. And they'll climb up to these big baobab trees and, and, uh, and chop into the limbs of the trees to get out honey. So they eat a lot of honey. Um, and the women are getting you know, plant foods. And so usually that's, I mean, it could be tubers or it could be berries or it could be um, they help process baobab foods. Men often collect the baobab pods. Uh, women will too, but they'll, and, and the women process them. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole mix of things. I mean, you know, I, I think a lot, the full species list, uh, plants and animals for the Hadzes, you know, it's dozens and dozens of species long. I got to see them. I got to go on a couple of honey foraging expeditions with them, and we found a couple of the small straws that go into the baobab tree. We did not use the help of a honey guide bird, but I want to have you tell us about that. Yeah, but yeah. we saw these little straws in the tree and then I got to hack into the tree with them. These, this, they called it Kanoa, I think is the honey from the mm. stingless bees. 
And then just as you describe in the book, one of the more senior members of the tribe quickly made a bunch of stakes out of tree limbs and pounded them into the baobab and was suddenly up in the tree looking for more honey. It was really interesting. One of the statistics that you point out in your book, which I found quite striking, but not necessarily surprising, was that at times they get 15 plus percent of their energy from honey. Um, and sugars, yeah. things like that. So it's it's certainly not a low carb, and I did not observe them to be a low carb culture at all. Yeah, right. um, they loved honey, um, but I, I love that in the book you described actually being with them. I wish I'd been there when they used the honey guide. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I've only seen it uh, maybe just the one time, maybe maybe twice. You know, you, they they're always listening for them. So the uh, it was really fun. We were walking um, with this guy Mossad and his wife. They don't often, you know. But when men hunt by themselves, but if they're going to go out and they know they're going to get honey that day, sometimes wife will come with them or a buddy will come with them. But uh, so they're going out to, to just get honey that day mostly. And um, yeah, we're just walking along, man. And Mossad, you know, he's like, they, they also they do that. They whistle, which is really cool. So they have these really kind of clear whistles. And each guy has his own signature whistle. Um, there's a whole study there, I guess, about, you know, how they develop their own whistles. But they're, they're always whistling and kind of, you know, trying to, to, to get the honey guide to, to answer back. And there's a, this species of bird called a honey guide that uh, will, if it sees people and it knows where there's a beehive, will whistle back, you know, call back, and then it will sort of come around and flutter around and it will sort of lead you to a beehive, you know, to a tree where there's a, where there's a hive up in the tree. Um, and it was completely amazing because, you know, you're just walking and this guy's whistling. I didn't really understand why he was whistling. It was my first season there with a Hadza. And I thought he was just like, you know, just whistling. And uh, it turns out he was calling a honey guide. And so when he saw him, boom, just turns like 90 degrees and shoots towards, you know, it, it, was, it was just so cool to see. And sure enough, there's a big old hive of honey up there. Yeah, it's really neat. We, I think that we asked them what happens, or there's some lore around this, kind of like there's lore around the epeme meat. Yeah. And, and we said, what if you don't save any honey for the honey guide bird? Did you ever ask them that? Yeah, so my buddy uh, and my colleague, Brian, has actually done a whole work study on this. And if you ask uh, them what you do, so, so they always bury the comb and they don't want to share any with it, you know, with a honey guide. So they kind of, it's interesting, you know, right? Because you'd think that like, oh, they want to give back. And that's one thing you learn when you work with the Hadza is that, you know, the whole like noble, savage mythology <laughs> that we tell our stories, we tell ourselves about, you know, oh, they must have hearts for these animals, you know, no, it's it's totally transactional in a way. And um, when they get the honey out of the out of the hive, they'll take everything they can get, and then if there's anything extra or left, they bury it or cover it up or burn it because they don't want the honey guy to get any. And if you ask them why they do that, of course the honey guy does get some. So don't, if you're listening at home, don't worry. The honey guy will get plenty anyway, just wraps around. But if you ask them why they bury it and why they don't want the hive, the honey guy to get any, they'll tell you, oh, well if he gets if he gets full, he won't come back and tell me where the next hive is. So there's a whole lore, like you say, about you know what, what they do and why they do it. It's so interesting the way they interact with their environment. What did you observe about their, their mental health, their overall demeanor? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, so you know, I, this is just my observational take on it. But they just seem really happy, really well-adjusted. You, know? um, you don't see depressed people that you know, that are that are obviously depressed you don't see people who, who are um you know just always negative and all they seem like a really kind of easygoing happy well-adjusted group of folks um like i say in the book you know that the classic the typical thing you hear from a hadza person when you're asking you know hey can we do this would you mind if we do this you know do you, do you mind if we stay in your camp for a while and like work with you guys and and take these measurements or whatever 
they're always like, ah, oh, hamnashita, which is Swahili for, yeah, no problem, no problem, you know? So everything's always hamnashita. Um, and you just think, wow, I wish I was that chill. I mean, you know, if I'm like hanging out in my house, it's a, I don't even like it when somebody knocks on my door and wants to sell me cable, you know? <laughs> if somebody knocks on my door and wants to like pitch a tent in my yard, um, I hope I'd be cool about it, <laughs> but I'm not sure. And do all these studies with you and follow yeah. you around every day. Right, and, right. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing, actually. They're so generous and, and um, they're just wonderful folks. They really are. And when I was with them, we were given fist bumps. And I don't know if that's like a Hadza thing or that's something they learned from tourists, but we were all fist bumping. Yeah. And they, every time it was Mtana Bawa, Mtana Kuku, and Semi Semi Kuku, and all this stuff. It was really cool. They said, you know, hello, friend, hello, man. And it was just, it was yeah, really, yeah. really cool to feel. Um, welcomed by them in, into the environment. And, and it was really an incredible experience that I had with them. We want to go back and spend more time. Now, what about their health? I mean, this has been written about. I know you've been a, an author on papers looking at their cardiovascular health. Are they healthy? Incredibly. I mean, you, uh, this is one of the reasons that it's so fun to work with them. And, and so, because, you know, you think you're we're seeing something really important which is that these folks that don't have any access to modern medicine, but are really active and eating you know, whole food diets are, you know, are incredibly healthy. They don't have high blood pressure. Um, you know, we've measured blood pressures in hundreds of Hadza men and women, and I can count on one hand the number that are you know, above the 140 cutoff for, you know, for grade one, what used to be called low you know, grade one hypertension. Um, we don't see elevated fasting glucose levels. Um, any evidence of type 2 diabetes, anything like that. I mean, we have BMIs now on people, you know, body weights on people for their whole adult lives, basically, from when they're in their early 20s to when they're, well, not their whole lives, because they live into their 60s and 70s. But we have people from their 20s to their 50s, um, and no change in body weight, so they're not like gradually becoming obese like we do here on average in, in the US. Um, incredible, incredible cardiometabolic health, for sure. I think I'll just screen share one of the studies that I believe, um, speaks to this yeah. so this is one of the studies um, that looked at that physical activity yeah. patterns and biomarkers of cardiovascular disease risk in hunter-gatherers mm -hmm. um, and this talks about the Hadza we'll put that one in the show notes our results provide evidence that the hunting and foraging hunting gathering foraging strategy involves high levels of uh, moderate to vigorous physical activity supporting the evolutionary medicine model for the relationship between MVPA and cardiovascular health and Basically, they have low prevalence of hypertension across the lifespan, span optimal levels of biomarkers for cardiovascular health. Yeah. Pretty interesting stuff. And then did you ever observe um, anything? I mean, obviously, like stroke or heart attack. I, I don't know. If you're only there for a short amount of time, but these are not really recorded in these populations. No, you're not. I mean, and so this is even expanding beyond the Hadza, right? The number of the, the, the likelihood that you die from something like that with the Hadza or even other subsistence groups, you know, subsistence farmers or other kind of horticulturalist groups, because, you know, colleagues of mine have worked with populations around the globe. And these traditional populations are incredibly, incredibly healthy. And, and they, what happens is, you know, if you get into your 60s and 70s or even 80s, what usually gets you is a pneumonia. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an acute infection. Um, now, okay, the part of the issue with trying to determine real rates and you know, prevalence and incidence of things like stroke would be that you know, people who just would have a, a, an acute stroke and would just you know, kind of die instantly are not going to be reported. They're not gonna to go to a hospital or get autopsy or anything like that. They'll just be observed as having died, 
Um, but yeah, as far as we can tell, these rates of that kind of stuff are really, really low. Despite them eating lots of animal foods, lots of yeah. sugar and honey and fruit, they, I love that you sort of take aim at some of these things in your book and say, hey, these paleo, quote, ideas that, that we were low carb don't hold up to uh, real observation from an anthropologic perspective. And, you know, we could also say, I think that plant-based notions that meat, uh, especially red meat or ruminant meat, whether it's from a kudu or an eland or a giraffe or a zebra, contribute to cardiovascular disease don't seem to be borne out in these populations either. No, I think that's fair. Um, I, you know, I think for some reason, the, the way that the paleo diet um, world has moved has been toward a very, you know, the, the, an interpretation that everything was completely meat-based and, you know, no, no, none of the calories or hardly even you know, negligible amounts of calories from anything besides meat. And I just don't think that the data bear that out at all. But I think you're absolutely right that, you know, we can also find populations that, like the hodge, that eat, you know, maybe half their calories are from meat, including red meat. Um, they eat warthog, right? So they're eating pork. Uh, they're eating ruminants, everything. That doesn't seem to affect them either in terms of, of you know, negative impacts on, on heart health. If anything, it probably leads to better health for them in terms of nutrient density and other things in their lives, especially with them eating the organs. Now, one of the things you mentioned in your book, which I observed and found interesting, was that with a lot of the tubers, they're quite fibrous and they're not actually fully swallowed. So you want to mention that a little bit? I mean, that seemed yeah. like, did you, yeah, it seems like there's just these, I don't know how to describe them or what adjective to use, like these, these sort of ancestral, these ancient tubers are not like the sweet potatoes I've seen in the store, at least not what, from what I observed. No, that's right. So there's a lot more fiber in them. So when you chew them, um, you know, you like cut off chunks and they, they roast them. And then some of them are like sweet and succulent enough that they'll eat, even eat them raw kind of as a snack, kind of like you might eat a carrot on, on the go. Um, but most of them they bring home, they roast up, and, um, and they're really, they taste really nice. And there's like a lot of good starch in there and, and a, good, a lot of good like potato-y kind of stuff. But through the whole thing is just enormous amounts of fiber. And so what you do is you chew and chew and chew and kind of suck out all of the, you know, all the starch. And then you spit out that quid, uh, which is all that, just that fiber that's been, you know, you, you couldn't digest probably anyway. But even when you do that, of course, you're still getting plenty of, of fiber because it's going to break down and, and you're going to eat a fair amount of it anyway. So they get a fair amount of fiber that way, but, but not as much as you would get if you just ate the whole thing and swallowed all of your pieces whole. I can't imagine how anyone would do that. It's just like eating grass. It's like eating sticks at that point with the quid. It's not very digestible. I mean, when we ate the tubers with them, we went and dug tubers and it was just mm -hmm. these sort of thin tubers and we ate them raw and it was just this starchy material in the mouth. There really wasn't any fiber with it. And then we mm. just spit out all the fibers. But it's always made me wonder if so much of the often repeated notion that this group or, or, or even other hunter gatherers are getting upwards of 150 grams of fiber a day is really true. Because when I was with them, yeah. there was no way they were getting anything near 150 grams of fiber per day. But that's that's repeated like it's canon within many circles today. Yeah, um, we, we've gone back and forth trying to look at this with the Hadza. It really comes down to what percentage of the quid, of, of, the, of the, yeah, what percentage of the fiber is being spit out with the quid. And that ends up being a tough estimate to make for sure. I mean, they're getting, they're getting fiber in the berries they eat too, because the berries are not like strawberries, right? The berries also have a lot of fibrousness in the, the husk of the berry. Um, and in the you know different plant foods they eat the eat baobab and so i don't know how much they're getting exactly probably but 150 sounds high uh, we might have 
forget what we published in the, the obesity reviews paper. It might have been around there. Probably that's a little high. We've revised that down a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's hard to know for sure. Um, but I would agree that a lot of estimates might be kind of high because it's hard to know how much of the quid is being spit out, basically. Yeah, it's not something you're going to eat. It's not like, and it, it speaks to the idea that so many of the foods that, at least in this region of Africa, Lake Yasi and Tanzania, they don't look like things we have in the supermarket. They don't have carrots like this. They don't have kale like this. And it's right. just not the type, same type of food. It, it looks different. We've certainly done things to hybridize these foods evolutionarily. Yeah. Now, you were there doing more than just observing them anthropologically. You were mostly doing these sort of metabolic studies, right? Looking at their resting energy expenditure. So let's let's move into this this yeah. conversation because it's quite fascinating and has a lot of relevance for discussions of obesity. Mm -hmm. um, so what were you doing there and then what did you find and what was surprising about it? Yeah, so this is sort of, you know, uh, this, like you said earlier, is my specialty, is this sort of intersection of metabolism and human evolution. And the reason I'm interested in how the body burns calories is because, you know, life is a game of turning energy into kids, right? From an evolutionary point of view, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's what it's all about. Uh, and we had no data when we started this work uh, over a decade ago, I guess. We had no data on how your body burns calories in a hunting and gathering lifestyle. And you know, nobody's ever gone and measured it with living hunter-gatherers before. Uh, and so we took uh, the doubly labeled water method to the field. So if, if you don't know, you drink isotopically enriched water. So some of the water, some of the hydrogens are deuterium. Some of the oxygens are oxygen 18. And we can use those isotopes as, as tracers, basically, to, to trace your body flushing out um, hydrogens, which it loses as water, and H2O in the water, and how you lose um, oxygens out of your body. And you lose the oxygens as water and as CO2. And so by subtracting the, the depletion rates of the H's and the O's, we can get to the CO2. So in other words, it's a really good physiological measurement of how much carbon dioxide your body's making every day, which is a, you know, essentially a direct measure of calories you're burning per day. And so we took this isotopically enriched water to the field, and we did this study. So you, you end up with a sort of 10-day long period where you're measuring um, energy expenditures in odds of men and women in this case. And uh, we had a really, you know, it gives you a really validated, accurate measurement of how many calories you burn every day. And the surprise was, of course, we, you know, we went there uh, thinking they're going to be these sky-high daily energy expenditures because they're getting, you know, something like five times more activity every day than folks do in, in the U.S. and Europe. Um, so we were sure they would have really, really high metabolic rates, and they didn't. Their their total energy expenditures were exactly the same. Um, as, you know, as folks in the U.S. and Europe. So that was like a total head-scratcher, and, and it became this, you know, really important, I think, observation about how the body's trying to homeostatically, it seems, keep total energy expenditure kind of in a pretty narrow band in the same way that you try to keep, you know, body temperature in a pretty narrow band. Your body's actually trying to, to kind of clamp that and doesn't let it go too far either way. Um, and that's an important observation for how we think about how things like exercise affect you know, energy expenditure affect energy deficits, affect weight. So there's a whole sort of, you know, set of consequences there. And it all started because we were interested as anthropologists in just this one data point, which is if you're in a hunter-gatherer, how many calories do you burn every day? Right. And so when I had a, I did a podcast recently with Stephen Gundry, and he talked about one of these papers he published. His theory, which I, I disagree with, and I think you would probably disagree with, was that oh, well, the Hadza are clearly burning more calories because they're walking around a bunch. And then the reason that the rest of us have such a high uh, caloric expenditure is because we have inflammation in our bodies. Yeah. And 
your, your ideas are sort of the reverse of that, that, that actually the body is trying to maintain a homeostasis, that it's not that the rest of us have high metabolism because we're inflamed. I mean, many of us are inflamed in the, in the general population, and we'll talk about that in relation to the processed food that we're eating. But that, it sounds like, in reading your book, it sounds like you would not point to that inflammation as the reason that our metabolisms are elevated, but rather the fact that even though the Hadza are doing all of this extra work, their body is sort of down-regulating other things to keep it within a constrained region. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess, well, hmm, I could see people kind of not, not, yeah, so, I, yeah, so, I think that um, there's this sort of species-specific evolved metabolic rate that we're kind of built to run at. And the reason I think that this is, you know, an evolved thing is that if you look at humans, our metabolic rates are higher, for example, than chimpanzees, even after you correct for body size and composition and activity levels and all that stuff. Our metabolic rates have shifted about 20% higher. Chimpanzees are about 20% lower. Gorillas are a little lower than them, orangs below them. So you see, if you, if you work with metabolic rates and evolution, um, you see across species, you know, yes, bigger animals tend to burn more calories, but even once you account for body size, there's this variation, and evolution seems to have parked different species in different, different sort of places. Um, we seem to be parked at this, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 calories a day kind of place, depending on how big you are. Bigger people burn a little bit more calories than smaller people. Um, and then the question becomes, in my mind, how does the body burn those calories? Because it's going to burn them. And if you have a, you know, sort of a normal physiology for a human, which would be a hunting and gathering physiology, because that's how we're evolved. We're not evolved to be urbanites, right? Um, if you think about Hadza or any, any hunting and gathering group, actually what is sort of physiologically normal for humans, then you're spending, you're spending those calories largely on physical activity, right? And if you take that away, then the body's going to spend it on something, and it spends it on things like inflammation, or it spends it on things like stress reactivity, or it spends it on things like um, much higher reproductive hormones, uh, for example. So Hadza men's testosterone levels are about half of what they are uh, for men in the U.S., even though you could probably agree that the Hadza guys aren't, you know, <laughs> aren't suffering in terms of virility or whatever. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're tough guys. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that exercise has this regulatory effect because within the kind of constraint, within kind of a fixed budget, if you're spending your calories on exercise, then you don't have those calories to sort of waste on other, this other stuff that actually can be detrimental. Yeah, it's quite an interesting idea. And it, it really does challenge a lot of the the mainstream conceptualizations, the mainstream paradigms of weight loss, which are simply eat less, move more, which fails in many ways, because if you just eat less and move more, well, you can tell us what happens. So maybe tell us about Kevin Hall's studies with The Biggest Loser. Those are quite interesting. Yeah. And then some of the studies that even Ansel Keys did with conscientious objectors. And I believe there's one called the Westermark study. Yeah, yeah. So if you, um, so right. The Hadza data, as well as some other studies, you know, that what they're basically telling you is the body wants to maintain homeostasis. It wants to defend, um, it wants to defend energy expenditure and keep that within a certain range. So if you exercise more, right, your body will adjust other stuff. So you keep, you actually keep the total energy expenditure the same. So there's an adjustment on that end. If you try to ramp it up, boost your metabolism, right, your body will fight back, and you don't end up boosting your metabolism at all. On the other side of it, if you decide to eat less and you do that in a drastic way. Right? If you drastically cut calories like they did in The Biggest Loser. So The Biggest Loser is this TV show where, if you don't know about it, you have people who are, have uh, severe obesity um, show up, and, and they basically are in a boot camp kind of thing situation for a couple months. 
and they exercise like crazy, and they get their, their diets are severely restricted. And uh, yeah, and they lose weight pretty rapidly, but what happens is their metabolic rates, their bodies actually kind of put on the brakes and go into starvation mode. And if you measure their resting metabolic rates, uh, they're, they're, they crash, right? They're, their resting metabolic rates are way, way lower because their bodies are trying to right the ship, right? They're, they're, the signals your body is getting it are, we're starving, right? This is horrible, we're, this is really bad, and so your body kind of shuts things down and tries to kind of get through the bad time, which would be the way to understand it from an evolutionary point of view. But as a result, you know, um, that, that hurts your ability to lose weight too because your body is actually making it, you know, you're trying, to, you're trying to always create an energy deficit to lose weight. You're trying to take in fewer calories than you burn, and your body in the Biggest Loser study is actually reducing how much energy it burns, which makes it even harder to get to that energy deficit place. And it stays there, but the really scary thing is, I think, uh, from that study is, it was such a severe event that even six years later, when Kevin followed up with these guys, they still saw metabolic suppression, right? Their rest of metabolic rates are still low because their bodies are still kind of, you know, uh, in that kind of starvation mode where they've reduced metabolic rates. It's, it's, it's interesting, it's scary, and it's striking. And I think it tells us a lot about how we gain weight as humans yeah. today in industrialized, urbanized societies and how we should probably be losing weight. The biggest loser is probably not the right way to lose weight. Because as you mentioned in the book, one of the things that Kevin found when he did the, the, the re-analysis of these people six years later was that many of them had gained the weight back, almost all yeah. of them had, yeah. and many of them had gained more weight. And there appears to be this, it, it completely makes sense from an evolutionary context, there appears to be this overcompensating physiology that develops in human physiology when we starve ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think, you know, if, uh especially the crash diet thing where, you, I mean, if you feel like you're starving, there's a good, 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 good chance, I think, that your hypothalamus also thinks that you're starving and is pulling the levers behind the scenes to, to make all these changes happen. You know, I think that's, that's an important signal. We often kind of pass it off as like, oh, that's a willpower thing. Oh, you're just hungry, you know, but I think that that's telling you something. That's a behavioral signal. That's uh, just one piece of this overall body signal about how you respond to starvation, basically. And when we think about it from that perspective, maybe we should transition into thinking about how do you think, why are we so obese today as a, as a human species? Like what is going wrong? And then we'll talk about how we correct that. And it's probably not the biggest loser style. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, I think obesity is probably multifactorial. So I think that has to be put out there that we're not gonna find probably just one thing. Um, but if you had a, if, if I had to pick the one biggest driver, uh, I would, have to pin it on ultra-processed foods, you know? I mean, the growth of obesity in the U.S. has paralleled the percentage of our diets that we get from these over-engineered, ultra-processed foods, where they're full of added sugar, full of added oils, full of added you know, uh, flavorings, and they're delicious. That's the problem, right, you know? And, and uh, we know from Kevin Hall's work again, a uh, different study, that if you give people, um, you know, you, you put it in front of them a plate full of food, and it's, you know, in one case, it's whole foods that are not ultra-processed. You know, it's, it's meats and vegetables and, you know, maybe pasta, but nothing too over-processed. Versus that another plate of food that has the same number of calories, same number of carbs, fats, proteins, right? It's the same food from a macronutrient point of view. On paper, it's the same meal, but it's ultra-processed. People will over-consume the ultra-processed foods up by a lot. You know, you'll gain a pound a week 
on the ultra processed foods. Uh, that's really that's really bad, right? I mean, that's, that's actually really fast weight gain in these controlled studies. And you know, um, I, I think that that's if you had to pick a culprit, I think that's it, right? Because I think my work says other people's too that you can't push the energy expenditure side of the of the of the equation very what much. It's hard. It's hard to, to burn more calories because your body fights back against that. If you try to boost with exercise, for example, you're going to get pushed back. So that means obesity has to be mostly on the energy intake side. That's where the big lever is. That's where you get all your, your you know, that's where all the leverage is. And, um, you know, what is about the intake side? Well, I, you know, for me, I think it's ultra processed foods. I think it is the, if you had to pick one factor, that's it. I completely agree with you. And there's an adage that I think is true, which is that you can't out exercise a bad diet, right. which is exactly what we're talking about. And just to emphasize this point once more, exercising is not the way that humans lose weight. It's certainly, neither of us is saying it's not a valuable component of being a right. human. Right. We are in fact, as, as you say, hunter gatherers at our core, we are meant to move. We need to move. We are not meant to be sitting in chairs all day and fluorescent lit offices. We're meant to move, whether that's, right. but that doesn't have to be excessive. It doesn't have to be extreme. Um, I think a walk or something that you enjoy, some sort of movement is important for, for us as humans. The Hadza are not lifting weights. The Hadza are not sprinting every day. They definitely sprinted in the middle of the hunt when, we, when, we, when the dogs sprinted. But mm -hmm. generally, they're doing this sort of low-level activity, which is just casual and enjoyable for us as humans. It doesn't need to always be grit your teeth, super intense exercise. And right. again, we're back to, I mean, maybe the title of the podcast is why the biggest loser is the worst show ever, because in a way <laughs> it's modeling, it's modeling the worst possible thing for humans in terms of weight loss. And the obesity epidemic is profound. Yeah. There are so many people who are gaining weight today. And there's the explanation I think that is subtly, not so subtly given is you're not eating, you're not, you're eating too much and you are not exercising enough. And Though those both may be true, there's a lot of nuance that gets lost there. So uh, this idea of the intake side being the main contributor to obesity really starts to point, I think, an important finger at food quality. And, and you mentioned that. And for me, it's all about food quality. And that's why I, I bristle at people who suggest that weight loss is simply calories in, calories out, because there's no attention uh, to food quality. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Well. I push back a little bit. I think, you know, it's Ill, it's, it's fundamentally about calories in and calories sure. out. I mean, that's how, if you're not burning more than you're eating, you are not losing weight, period. I agree. Um, you know, people always say, are you telling me that all calories are the same that, you know, and I say, well, look, you know, I've got little kids in grade school and they're of the age when they ask you questions like what weighs more, a pound of feathers or a pound of rocks, right? You know, you go, well, they weigh the same. It's both a pound, right? But it, would you rather get hit in the face with a pound of feathers or a pound of rocks, right? So um, the, the substance matters even if the, the units are the same, right? So I think, you know, you can, you can find uh, kind of interesting tests of the calories in, calories out idea versus quality that there's a guy who like went on the Twinkie diet, for example. He ate only junk food, right? But he was a nutritionist, and so he knew how many calories were in it. He was very careful, and he, he ate fewer calories than he burned. And even though he was eating Twinkies and terrible stuff, and I'm not recommending it at all, but even though he was eating terrible, terrible quality foods, he actually lost weight, and a lot of his cardiometabolic markers got better. Now, the reason that that's not going to work for most people, though, is because you're not a nutritionist at home carefully running an experiment on yourself. You're a person living your life, you know, in, in, in the world. 
And, um, and that's where the food quality gets you, I think, is that when you look at a supermarket and what is on the shelves, it, that's where quality comes into play. It's, it's the, sub, the subconscious or, or barely conscious, I'm going to pick the food that, that tastes the nicest, that has the brightest packaging, you know, and that's where it gets you. So I do, I push back that it's, it still comes down to calories, but the psychology of those calories and how they make you feel, of course, that's going to be different depending on the foods. And I don't know if this experiment's ever been done, but my suspicion is that the quality of the calories in can affect the calories out mm -hmm. or can affect things at the hypothalamic level. And I want to talk a little bit about that because you, yeah. you, I think, astutely point to the hypothalamus, this deep region of the brain with multiple nuclei, the ventromedial hypothalamus, et cetera, that compare hunger. And you hinted at this earlier. In, in your brain, in every person listening to this, you have a, a little man, a little elf in the center of your brain who is pulling levers. And those levers have to do with satiety. And those satiety levers are pulled in different ways, I believe, based on food quality. And so I still believe that it's calories in, calories out, but I think that the, that the calories out can be affected by the quality of the calories in. And, and I'll talk about why I think that's the case, because like you said, a pound of feathers, a pound of rocks, which do you want to get hit by in the face? I think that when you are describing these ultra processed foods, you said added sugar, added oils, which are seed oils, right? And there's a lot of good evidence that seed oils completely throw the hypothalamus into a bad state. And so this is quite fascinating to me that, that I mean, because you, you, you mentioned research by Kevin Hall that you can take two meals that are equivalent at the macronutrient level, but these two meals are not equivalent at the micronutrient level. They do not contain the same fats. They do not contain the same nutrients. So they're, they're equivalent at a macronutrient level, but I think that obesity research must consider micronutrients and the quality of the fat that you're eating. Is it linoleic acid? Is it oxidized linoleic acid? Is it a saturated fat? Is it a, is it a monounsaturated fat? How many poly, you know, how oxidized is it? And what are the co-occurring substances with the sugar? We've established with the Hadza and with many other tribes that, that eating sugar doesn't seem to be problematic for humans in the form of honey. But is it problematic when it's, when, it's a, when it's a sucrose molecule and high fructose corn syrup? I think it may be because of the things that often accompany sugar in these foods. I did a video a while back, and I'm curious on your thoughts on this. There are compounds in honey that actually increase nitric oxide in the human plasma. So I thought that was quite fascinating. And there are a lot of connections between nitric oxide metabolism, endothelial health, and insulin resistance or metabolic health. And so and, and certainly in mice, and I believe in humans, when you feed a human honey, there's a different metabolic response than when if you feed a human sucrose or processed cane sugar. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's, I, I've seen those claims. I've also seen reviews saying like, you know, you have, you randomize people to uh, table sugar, honey, or um, high fructose corn syrup to like, as their sweetener of choice for I know, a week or a couple of weeks. And you don't see big metabolic effects that way. Uh, and so I'm not, you know, high fructose corn syrup is around the same ratio of fructose to glucose as um, honey is. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I don't know that, I, maybe, I'm a skeptical, I'm a skeptical scientific minded kind of person. That's how I'm trained and that's, that's you know, what I do. So um, I don't, you know, it might well be that those are, are important to look at and that they're, well, they're important to look at, I can, I'll say that. Um, whether they're gonna work out that way, I don't know. I, wouldn't need to see the data. The, the interesting important nuance is that the honey must be raw, uh, that if you look at the studies with nitric oxide precursors, they're degraded when the honey is not raw. And so if mm -hmm. you, depending on the study that's being done, and this is the problem, 
of most nutritional research, if you just give someone honey in a plastic bear, that's you know probably half high fructose corn syrup because a lot of honey is adulterated. It's not surprising they're completely different. But I've talked about this in other things, and I can send you some interesting papers. Sure. Honey does seem to affect certain metabolic parameters in humans differently than than high fructose corn syrup or you know mixtures that are sham honey, quote unquote, equivalent amounts of glucose and fructose in a sucrose yeah. molecule. But it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I don't think high fructose corn syrup or table sugar is going to affect nitric oxide metabolism, but there are things that occur there. But certainly, even moving on to the seed oils, this is quite an interesting topic. Are you familiar with any of the ways that seed oils can affect uh, the hypothalamus in the human brain? Uh, not as well as you are, I'm sure. So why don't you give us the rundown? Well, it's just, I thought it was quite interesting because it, it's just, I think, an interesting segue from the things that you're saying, because correct me if I'm wrong, but in your book, it seemed like the ultimate conclusion that you reached was like, the hypothalamus is what it's all about, right? Yeah. Yeah, for, for hunger and satiety, for sure. I mean, I'm, that's, that's borrowing heavily from like Stephen Guinea's work and, and others. That's not my focus of my research. But yeah, I, I think that's where the river hits the road in terms of, of balancing calories and then calories out. So if you look at studies like this one, which is quite interesting. Now, this is a, uh, both in rodents and humans, but um, you can see that if you injure the hypothalamus, you can get obesity. Oh, sure. in Stephen yeah. found that paper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's quite fascinating. And so, um, and then you can even move to papers uh, like this one, um, looking at the way that hypothalamic gene expression and oxytocinergic uh, expression is mm -hmm. abrogated or uh, damaged in soybean oil-fed male mice. And so this is, this is the kind of stuff that's really interesting. When we see soybean oil, basically an oil that we would never have had access to evolutionarily, affecting gene transcription, affecting epigenetics, and affecting um, you know, oxytocin secretion in the hypothalamus, it starts to, things start to make a little more sense to me at least. And I think, okay, is this the reason that these processed foods are so harmful to humans? I mean, what is it about processed foods that makes them so hard for humans? It's, it's not just magic fairy dust they sprinkle on it. It has to be something, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it could be the fairy dust that comes in all those weird, strange flavorings, right? I mean, the natural flavors thing, I think, is, is a, you know, that, that, that's, I think, a, a kind of a black box for what they're doing because the, the flavor profile is also going to be, you know, sensed by the reward signals in your brain, uh, systems in your brain, which are going to get their way to the hypothalamus as well. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that this is um, what I'd like to see is to move beyond the mouse stuff and, and see how these really play out in humans. I'll say this, when we look at, at the, back to the metabolic rates, you know, if you look at just to total calories a day or even calories at rest, um, macronutrient changes, which would include, you know, some of the oil changes because you kind of can't have, uh, well, anyway, anyway if, if you look at like ketogenic versus not, um, low carb versus high carb diets, you don't see some of the metabolic rate changes that people have, have suggested you should see. So one of the, you know, Gary Tapps, for example, has argued that, um, and David Ludwig argued that you should see much higher metabolic rates um, with ketogenic diets or with low, very low carb diets than you see on a low fat diet. Um, and there's different meta-analyses out there, uh, but as far as, you know, the way I look at the data, there's really no evidence for that at all. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that's, that's a different question than your question, which is, does the kind of oil, does the kind of fat, does the kind of fatty acid affect uh, the hypothalamus? And does it do it in humans? And does it do it in the wild? Those are, those are sort of different le levels of questions that are, I don't think we're there yet, but maybe, uh, maybe we're getting there soon. I hope so. 
it, you know, I, my my traveling companion Anthony Gustin and I were sort of asking ourselves and doing these thought experiments when we were in Tanzania, and saying, what is it about the diet here that's different than the American diet? And it's clearly the ultra processed foods. And so I keep coming back to that and thinking, what is it about these? Is it the flavorings? Is it the colorings? Or is it this these industrially processed seed oils with all sorts of problematic things in them? Or is it the fructose in, in the sugars that have been stripped away? Because, you know, you go next door to the neighboring Datoga uh, village, which oftentimes is encroaching on the Hadza land, unfortunately. And the Datoga were not necessarily obese. They, I would say they were, quote, I don't know how to say this politically correct. They were softer. Uh, they, the Hadza are pretty yeah. lean and the Hadza are pretty lean and mean. I mean, correct me if you had other observations, but the Datoga didn't quite look as, quote, ripped as the Hadza. The Hadza were certainly leaner and, um, but the Datoga so were- just, just, It's actually, that's a tough, that's an interesting point, but it's worth kind of diving into it a little bit. Um, the, there's also an ethnic group group difference there. Mm. So the Datoga are um, part of the uh, nilotic groups uh, to genetically and culturally that come down into that part of Tanzania that would have started up farther north and moved down over the last few generations. I mean, you're talking hundreds of years, not, not yesterday, but have moved down into that, that landscape. Um, and so there are just, you know, there are well described just differences in sort of body proportions um, with these nilotic groups that aren't the genetics of which aren't well understood, but a kind of tall, lean, light, tall lean build, and so uh, they you could have that impression, but what might be I'm not sure that's really true. We work with pastoralists who are not Datoga, but are part of that same cultural group up in, in Kenya, and um, and their body fat percentages are as low as they are in Hadza land, and you know fat-free masses are high and so I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure that there's actually a, a big body composition difference there. There may not be. The observation was really that the the ugali, the cornmeal that they were eating, wasn't causing them to be to be obese. You know. That no, they that's were, right. That's yeah. They, yeah, they, they were. Sure. You know, they were slightly. They had a slightly different body composition, and that may be yeah. due to genetics. But they the, the the ugali was not causing them to be obese. And so we jokingly said to each other, "It's not the ugali. It's not the cornmeal." And you know, coming from my background in the sort of carnivore space, there there was a time when I felt differently than that. But uh, I've taken a lot of heat. Uh, I'm fine with it, uh, like we all do. When I've come out recently and said, you know, I don't think carbohydrates are the problem. Uh, hmm. I don't think that uh, grain-based carbohydrates are particularly nutrient-dense or a great food for humans to be making the majority of their diet from, unless right. they're in a starvation state. But um, I don't think that, that carbohydrates in general are the problem. And, and seeing the Hadza with the honey is an illustration of that. I don't think that, I do not believe the Gary Taub's narrative that carbohydrates create insulin resistance mm -hmm. and metabolic dysfunction. And that's something that has become a little bit ingrained in people's minds and it, it needs to yeah. go in my opinion. But, but, you know, Anthony and I were looking at each other and saying, it's not the Ugali. As much as we wanted to hate the Ugali and see the Ugali as the spawn of Satan, it didn't appear to be creating massive amounts of metabolic health. Is it as nutrient dense as an animal? I don't think it is. It's not, it's not a, a kudu liver, um, but it is calories and it doesn't seem to create rampant or immediate diabetes in these people. Right. Um, and so there has to be something else going on, right? Like what is, what is it? And, and that to me is a fascinating question that I, that I think that, that you are probably asking yourself too, because we've come to some of the same conclusions around these processed foods. Now, there's an interesting study in your book that I'd love for you to talk about. It was in Boston, and I think it was a, 
a Boston policeman study. Do you want to talk yeah, about that one in terms of like weight loss, weight loss and exercise? Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a, a classic study uh, done. I, I don't know which university, but in 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 Boston. So they had a you know a Boston sample, and it was Boston policemen who had who were overweight or obese, and they signed up for the study, and they said, okay, you guys, you are going to um, have diet as your intervention to lose weight. Half of you are going to have diet plus exercise to lose weight, right? And so that's what happened. And so they, they track both groups and both groups lose an indistinguishable amount of weight. You know, both groups have the same weight loss, whether you're exercising or not, um, or the, over the first portion of the study. So they all lose weight, which is great. And the diet's doing all the work. And you know that because the ones who are exercising on top of the diet don't see any effect. And then at the end of the weight loss period, which is a few months long, they then reassign them and say, okay, uh, half of you are going to uh, put exercise into your lives, right? Whether you exercise it before or not, okay, half of you are going to keep on exercising. The other half of you can stop exercising. If you weren't exercising before for the first portion, half of you are going to start exercising. The other half of you continue to not exercise, right? And so kind of a reassignment and a reshuffling of the deck. And what happened was after that weight loss period, the ones who exercised were able to maintain the weight loss, regardless of if, whether they were exercising to, to, you know, with the diet change to kind of achieve the weight loss, which the exercises wasn't doing that much, regardless of what group they were in initially, the exercise group post weight loss maintained the weight loss better with the exercise. So that goes to tell you, I think a little bit about the kind of regulatory, yeah, perfect. Um, the regulatory aspects of exercise which I think is, is really fun to think about. Yeah, that, that exercise was necessary to keep the weight off. Right. But, and there were two points that I thought were striking, that when one group had diet and exercise, and one group had diet only, they lost essentially the same amount of weight, right? Is that yeah. an accurate not, statement? There aren't error bars on that, but basically those are indistinguishable amounts of weight loss. Oh, yeah. And then, as we look here, um, I'm showing a video for those uh, who are listening to this. You can see yeah. the, the, the graphic on YouTube. Um, as we look at this moving out, the only group that maintained the weight loss was the group that exercised. So this is not to say that exercise is not valuable for humans. No. It's important no. from, you know, a brain-derived neurotrophic factor in the brain. It's just to say that weight loss is not about over-exercising. And yeah. it's, it's a critical component. It's just that's a fascinating, um, that's a very fascinating result at the end of this, that, that humans are meant to move, mm -hmm. but that the way to lose weight is not necessarily through excessive amounts of exercise, right? No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, um, uh, the, uh, you talk about getting kind of kicked around in the public sphere when you go out with your ideas, you know, and so the, uh, so my, my version of that is, um, people hate it. People hate that exercise doesn't have a bigger, you know, piece to play for weight loss. Um, there's a lot of people who don't want to hear that and, and people who make the point that, Hey man, exercise is still really important for all these other things, which is true. I don't disagree with that. And they say that people have made some interesting like, well, if you exercise, you might be able to hold on to your lean mass better as you lose weight. So there could be some benefits there. And so, you know, um, I, I don't disagree with any of that stuff. But as that graph shows really nicely, if, if you need to lose weight, if you're at an unhealthy weight, then, you know, obviously diet's the, the lever to pull. And I think that we would probably both agree that food quality matters. Yeah, absolutely. Completely. Yeah, I uh, guess that that's really my my problem. And this may not be an accurate characterization of uh, of this group of people, but I think there are people in, in the health space who would who would say, 
calories in, calories out, end of story. It doesn't matter what you eat, just eat less of it. And I think that's a problematic perspective. And, mm-hmm. and these type of people would say, you know, and you, you mentioned this with the Twinkie study and to that study I wanted to say, you know, obviously long-term consumption of Twinkies would be a nutritional nightmare Absolutely. Um, <laughs> resulting yeah. in all sorts yeah. of things. And, and I love that you pointed out, there's like this subconscious thing going on with humans. And sure, a researcher at a university who's doing this to maintain his grant funding can maintain a Twinkie <laughs> diet for a few weeks, but uh, yeah. putting your body into a prison of caloric restriction without changing the quality of your food will ultimately fail. I mean, I've talked about this with the people on other podcasts. Ultimately, the majority of weight loss strategies fail. And my suspicion is that that's because there's not enough attention to food quality. You get, you get, you get things like Weight Watchers, which are just really slightly less processed, ultra processed food. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, that in my mind, um, you know, a couple points to make, and I, I don't disagree with any of that. What I would say is that food quality matters, and we actually know some of the ways, you know, you've already mentioned some of them, but we all know some of the ways that food, that the ways that food quality matters, right? If you can get more protein in your diet, people tend to be happier on, on less. If you can get, you know, fiber is another way that you can be happier on fewer calories. And so the reason that diets, I, I think, tend to fail, um, in addition to being, you know, problematic, like you're saying, because, you know, the, the quality isn't good, but people don't stick to them. Right? People don't like the diets that they're on because they don't like the flavor. They don't, they don't feel full or whatever it is. And if you don't like what you're doing, you know, uh, you're not going to do it. You know, as an anthropologist, I can tell you, <laughs> if, you're not, if you don't like what you're doing, you're not going to do it. And, uh, you know, I'm not a dietitian, but, uh, but that much should be true to obviously anybody who works with people. Like, and so what I think um, that food quality absolutely matters. And what I would just like to see you know, somebody who's not really in the diet war stuff or didn't ever want to be anyway, what I wish I would see more of is a kind of broader acceptance of, okay, food quality matters. Here are some principles. Let's eat, you know, whole foods, let's eat also processed foods. Let's try to eat healthy. And there are a lot of ways to get there, right? You don't have to only be do it this way or do it that way. You don't have to be vegan. You don't have to be keto. Those might work for you. If that works for you, that's great. But those aren't the only ways, you know, that you can get there. Um, and if we can kind of open that up a little bit, maybe you get people more breathing room to find a diet that works for them and they don't feel miserable on, and they are able to kind of stay at a, at a lower calorie throughput. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think there are a lot of, and this is a relative statement, I think there are a lot of selections of food that can work for humans, um, yeah. for human health. And uh, interestingly, you know, uh, there are other nuances there that, that I focus on a lot, which is that there are even within that discussion, there are different layers of complexity that, that within those selections of foods, even within the selection of whole foods, there are many individuals who react to them from an immune perspective. And that's not something we have to get into today, but that's a fascinating thing to me. That yeah. um, even, that I think the first step that we would both agree on <clears throat> completely is that we must be eating foods that we would find in nature in ratios that are reasonably consistent with what we might find in nature. And that can look, but that, those very loose constraints can mean a lot of different things for a lot of people. And then for those who make that step and don't achieve the results, I think you need to go further and look at the ways that certain foods that are even whole foods might be affecting people immunologically. So, but it is, I think it's fascinating stuff. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I know you have to run. Um, I really enjoyed the book. I would encourage people to, to read it. It was a really, it was just a very great read. I hope you'll write more and I hope we can have more conversations about this stuff uh, in the future, my friend.
Yeah, it was great to be on your show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. So we were just chatting after the podcast and realized that we should put this one attached to the podcast. Um, Herman, where can people find more of your work? And if people want to support the persistence of the Hadza, some of the last remaining hunter-gatherers on the planet, how can they do that? Right. So uh, my work's online, like everybody, you know, these days. But uh, if you want to learn more about the Hadza and the kind of work we're doing there and how you can help them out, uh, you can check out the Hadza Fund. It's a nonprofit that uh, me and some other collaborators have begun. And so that's Hadza Fund, H-A-D-Z-A-F-U-N-D dot org. And you can go check out the work we're doing, um, what we're doing to try to help out their community and give back. And if you want to contribute too, that'd be great. Awesome. Awesome. And that's really, that's really what needs to happen. I think Herman and I both agree that, that the Hadza are living testament, uh, a living trace back to where we've been as humans and they should be protected and hopefully we can protect their lands and allow them to hunt more kudu. <laughs> Absolutely.